With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Thinkers Radio, and my name is Kim, and today we have Dr. Sikivu Hutchinson from Black Skeptics Los Angeles to talk to us about her new book, Godless Americana. Welcome, Dr. Hutchinson. Good morning, Kim. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. We have a nice, radiant, sunny day here, so um should be a nice weekend. <laughs> well, that's great for you guys. We just had a bunch of flooding, so. <laughs> yeah, sorry for rubbing in. <laughs> well, we have some sun today, so we'll take whatever little we can get. <laughs> so no vicariously, exactly. <laughs> You'll take it vicariously, if not at all. Exactly, exactly. You know, drop the drop top for us and think about us fondly. How about that? <laughs> but your new book, Godless Americana, it is a wonderful book. Thank you. We appreciate it. What was your motivation behind this book? Well, it was a follow-up to Moral Combat, and it is an assessment of the political climate and the role religion has played in shaping race, white supremacy, and really looking at this delusion of post-racialism, colorblindness, and American exceptionalism that's emerged with a vengeance in the era of Obama. So I wanted to to pull back a little bit and to really give a hard-hitting, trenchant, black feminist, radical humanist assessment of the backlash and assault on social justice that we've seen over the past several years, post-Obama. And in my mind, there has not been any real 
deep and abiding critique and consciousness of the decline of African-American socioeconomic sustainability, um, looking at the wage gap, looking at the wealth gap, looking at the intractability of de facto residential segregation, and uh, the really devastating impact that that has had upon the trajectory of African-American wealth and employment in the so-called post-racial, colorblind, American exceptionalist era. So I wanted to do that from an African-American humanist perspective, a perspective that is really grounded in the social history and legacy of black free thought, um, looking at the activism of people like A. Philip Randolph, the landmark uh, labor organizer, socialist publisher, and intellectual, uh, looking at the inroads that were made by people like Hubert Henry Harrison, African-American communist organizer and Harlem Renaissance voice, and you know, trying to bring that into a 21st century context again where we're really living in this paradoxical space where it's being proclaimed that there's all of this opportunity, that there's all of this access to upward mobility, where African-American wealth, again, has been totally decimated by mm -hmm. the housing decline, you know, by the Wall Street debacle, and there has not been any engagement on this at a federal public policy level coming from our African-American president, and him being, again, this paradigm of black uplift and black progress and black talented tense exceptionalism, and there being no engagement with the realities, the apartheid realities that African-Americans and other people of color are confronting in urban America. Exactly. Excellent. Because no one has addressed you know, the wealth that's been lost by people of color with this last, you know, um, bubble that burst, you know, and with the housing bubble there. And, you know, if you if you can, can you speak about the wealth gap? Because I've posted a lot of materials. I was explaining to people, and I've posted materials for them to see how the FHA was responsible for the ghettoization of black America, but also I posted some information to show them that the wealth gap, there wasn't a wealth gap until, you know, the early, well, basically the 1930s and 1940s, and that, that came into being with the GI Bill. Yes. So two critical institutions, GI Bill, as well as the Federal Housing Administration, um, really helped to propel white middle class and white working-class people into the American dream. The GI Bill excluded African-American veterans from getting educational benefits and, via the Federal Housing Administration, from getting mortgage lending benefits. So these were all benefits that were flowing to European-American working-class and lower-middle-class folk and enabling them to, quote-unquote, um, you know, using... Um, the shop-worn themes of bootstraps uplift and, you know, Horatio Alger advancement allow them to achieve the middle-class American dream while systematically shutting out African Americans primarily and other people of color secondarily. So what you had with this nexus, and it's not just GI Bill and the FHA, but it's also other institutions um, like, you know, the Veterans Administration, like Social Security, um, these institutions, you know, established white wealth and really um, exacerbated racialized wealth gaps that already existed. So the ghettoization that we see here in the 21st century is a legacy of these institutions and really looking at this in terms of the whole architecture of the New Deal. I mean, the New Deal was based upon these institutions, VA, Social Security, uh, GI Bill, Federal Housing Administration. So redlining comes into existence with the FHA, where the FHA uh, basically establishes as policy that it will not lend to, quote, unquote, urban ghetto areas. And, of course, 
who is disproportionately concentrated in these quote-unquote urban ghetto areas, lower working-class African-Americans and middle-class African-Americans. And so the issue in Gallus Americana is how do we connect this systematic racial apartheid via the institution of residential segregation, de facto segregation, but, but really um, a, co a complex mix you know, of apartheid conditions, legalized segregation, and de facto segregation, i.e. non-legal segregation. How do we connect this to the predominance of institutions of organized religion in the United States? So mm -hmm. the issue is, if we look at our communities, I know, Kim, you and I have talked about this ad nauseum, ad infinitum. If we look at our communities, what are the primary institutions, uh, quote-unquote, capacity-building institutions that we see? They are churches. So every block is massed with these churches, storefront churches, mid-size, in some instances, megachurches. And if we go to white working-class communities and, of course, white middle-to-affluent communities, we do not see this proliferation of church architecture and infrastructure. And that has everything to do with these legacies of institutionalized racial apartheid based upon residential segregation. The fact that African-American small businesses and entrepreneurs cannot get loans similar to even white working class entrepreneurs and small businesses shut out systematically by contemporary practices, 21st century practices, put into place by commercial lenders that systematically discriminate against African-American business owners. And we're not even going to talk about the residential market um, and all of the lawsuits uh, that have come down on major brokers like Countrywide and Wells Fargo and Bank of America for systematically targeting African-American home buyers and Latino home buyers for uh, subprime and predatory loans. So when we look at, again, this nexus of the dominance of organized religion in our communities, look at it in terms of a sociological lens, it is not sufficient, I'm going back to one of the theses of Godless Americana, it's not sufficient as white thinkers and writers do to simply say that peoples of color are so steeped in religiosity because we're not educated, because we are backward, because we are unenlightened, because we do not subscribe to evolutionary principles, because we do not bow down to um, the, the paramount importance of Darwin. It is a racist and white supremacist critique. Mm -hmm. And so that's what Dallas Americana does, is it grounds us as black freethinkers, humanists, and atheists in a sociological and a social justice and economic justice-based critique of the dominance of organized religion and the absolute need to address this in terms of looking at these overarching structures of power, oppression, control, and capitalist domination in our communities. Excellent. Very good. And that's one of the reasons why, because I've noticed, you know, some involvement on my behalf, just paying attention and noticing things and, you know, introspecting. And this is why I say to other people of color in this community that we have to be very careful with some of the statements that we make because I now recognize it as being self-hatred, if you will, or patriarchal type of language because, you know, again, the assumption is made that, you know, the people that are believers of color, that they are less than intelligent or that they have a mental illness because they believe. And, again, that, you know, beating up on them. And I think that it's time for us to elevate ourselves and elevate our thoughts. I don't believe personally that it's our job to beat up on them. I believe it's our job to help them because we're part of the community. And it's about us working together, and I believe that this is a time where we can show our faces and make ourselves known and actually bring a positive change to our community. Exactly. 
And what I would say, um, attending to what you just said in terms of we as free thinkers being fully integrated into communities of color that are struggling with these issues of racial apartheid is, I would direct your readers to check out an extremely important survey uh, done by some Brown University researchers under the aegis of the U.S. 2010 survey. And this survey concluded that African-American and Latino middle class to upper middle class homeowners are more likely to be concentrated in, quote, unquote, lower income, socioeconomically depressed communities that are transit dependent, that do not have access to living wage jobs, that are under siege by high rates of foreclosure, high rates of mass incarceration, and we can go on down the line. And I certainly know, um, as someone who grew up in South L.A. and bought a house in South L.A., that there is a cross-section of class positionalities within African-American and Latino South L.A. and East L.A. communities. And there's a cross-section because of these institutionalized policies. So we cannot, again, go into a conversation about the potential and the cultural relevance of humanism without having some critical consciousness about mm-hmm. the ways in which we are fundamentally dispossessed of any purchase on power and socioeconomic wealth that absolutely informs, again, the dominance of structures of organized religion, of investment into organized religion, of the use of organized religion as a source of agency, particularly, and unfortunately from our position, by African-American women. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, when you try to bring that to the forefront, you know, that's where some of the resistance comes in, but we have to recognize it. And, again, you know, going back to, you know, you're talking about women um, here, you know, and let's talk about the free thought community and I have a question here. Will the intersection of feminism and social justice ever be a major player in this community? Well, I certainly hope that it will come to the forefront more than it has now. Um, We have to look at the realities of black women in America when it comes to the lens of feminism and the fact that we have had a very conflicted relationship to mainstream feminism, to second wave, and in some instances, third wave feminism. Um, historically, and I go into this in great detail in the book, looking at um, women of color and faith traditions and women of color and free thought. Historically, African American women have been at the forefront of feminist movement and feminist struggle, particularly around linking racial terrorism and sexual terrorism and economic disenfranchisement. That was a linchpin of the life's work and organizing and intellectualism of Ida B. Wells, who is a majorly unsung African-American feminist activist who was battling with white women in the late 19th and early 20th century to have her voice heard as an activist around issues of being molested um, on a public train, of, you know, being segregated in a Jim Crow car and then being sexually terrorized as an African-American woman, being sexually terrorized in white households, you know, and linking that to the whole regime of lynching that existed not just in the Deep South but also in the Midwest and the West. Mm-hmm. And so activists like Ida B. Wells were really forerunners in articulating the degree to which this legacy of the commodification and objectification of black women's bodies under slavery deeply informed the ways in which African-American women were disenfranchised when it came to wealth dynamics, when it came to employment, when it came to being in the public sector and having to not just assume 
the double burden, which means working on the home front and working in a job, but also the triple burden of, you know, working, you know, as domestics for privileged white women, in some instances, you know, quote-unquote not-so-privileged, you know, lower-middle-class white women, but always being viewed as the hypersexual, immoral Jezebel. And getting it from, you know, multiple positions, you know, not just getting it from, you know, white supremacist America, but also from our own community, you know, in terms of, you know, being viewed, you know, not just as Jezebel, but, you know, as breeders, um, as matriarchs, um, as undermining the uplift and empowerment of African-American men, um, as not having any purchase on our self-determination when it came to issues like, institutionalized sexual assault within the African-American community and the license, you know, that black men were given, you know, to and are given, you know, to sexually assault and sexually harass and and abuse African-American women. We have the highest rates of intimate partner violence and sexual assault in the United States. So these are critical issues for us as African-American feminists that um, are not only erased when it comes to the broader trajectory of the mainstream civil rights movement, but have no real traction when it comes to the mainstream, if we can even call it, feminist movement now, the women's Mm -hmm. movement. Um, So if we look at this from a secular context, our issues are not being heard in the richness of their intersectionality, that there is no real engagement with the way in which the black church, for all of its deficits, for all of its heterosexism, sexism, patriarchy, misogyny, this you know, bedrock investment and inscription of those regimes of oppression. The black church, for better or for worse, has been a source of lifeblood for black women. And Mm -hmm. so as radical feminist free thinkers of African descent, we're going to have to frontally engage with that paradox. And the way in which you frontally engage with that paradox, and you and I have spoken about this many times, is we have to develop our own institutions that reflect a radical humanist ethos that is steeped within social and gender justice. We have to do that within the context of our schools, which are under siege, not just by racism and white supremacy, but now by corporatization and privatization. We have to engage with this in terms of building community centers, you know, to counteract the dominance of religious-based programming for youth in our communities. We have to develop after-school programs and on down the line. So for us, you know, the project is not just, you know, getting back to my earlier comments, where y'all are just, you know, backwards and, you know, believe in miracles and prayed up and churched up. That's not going to roll for us. That has absolutely no purchase on reality for us. You know, that kind of diatribe against black psyches and, and black social capital because again you know the black church is a form of social capital and we're at the forefront of critiquing it of deconstructing it but we must be in a position to provide viable sustainable social and economic exactly. justice alternatives exactly exactly i agree with you 100% and you know, I've been conveying this for the past couple of years, and especially really hard this past year, in which I have stated emphatically that we must offer some type of alternative. We must be able to go into these communities and go in and offer goods and services and bring about, you know, bring about the change that we're talking about, because this is the only way it's going to happen at this point. This is in it's just it's unbelievable, but I'm glad that you brought up about Ida B. Wells and, you know, the women at the forefront, the black women that were at the forefront of the women of the um, feminist movement because I've spoken to the people about Florence Kennedy and a little bit about Kimberly Crenshaw. And yeah. you know, what I don't understand is 
well, I do understand, but how we were factored out of that particular equation, even with the um, gay rights movement, you know, it started out in Stonewall with people of color fighting the police, fighting for their rights, and, and they were factored out. And, again, in their efforts to sanitize and mainstream these issues, they factored us right out of the equation. And what I'm starting to see now are, you know, people of color coming back into these particular realms, if you will, now with the feminist movement, you know, women of color. I'm starting to see more religious women of color proclaiming to be feminist. And, you know, I've had different discussions with different people in our community, and they feel that it's oxymoron for, you know, a Christian woman to call herself, you know, a feminist. But what I say to them is, we were involved in the feminist movement, and what happened was, in many cases, they had to choose between the feminist movement and the black liberation movement. So, you know, quite a few of them sided with the black liberation movement, and at that time, many of them were silenced or they silenced themselves regarding the feminist movement. But now that I see them talking about it again, I mean, we have to take every step forward that we can. The fact that they are now finding the courage to even speak about feminism, that speaks volumes. Yeah, and I think that... um there's a lot of discussion that we need to have, again, about the social history of feminism and, you know, getting back to your critique about silencing. Really recognizing that as African-American women, we were caught in the crossfire of we're looking back into the 1960s, you know, with the emergence of the National Organization for Women, that we were caught in the crossfire of an emergent black nationalist, black power movement, and an emergent white-dominated feminist movement. And by white-dominated, I mean that the face of feminism was white women, not Mm -hmm. African-American, Latina, Native American, Asian-American women. And so being caught in that crossfire meant that we had to establish our allegiances based upon racist, white supremacist, white supremacist rhetoric coming from white women saying that, well, your issues as oppressed, working-class women living in transit-dependent, segregated communities where you have to work for Miss Ann, where you have to take a bus from your community in the south side of Chicago all the way over to an affluent white middle-class community to work as a domestic in the kitchen of Miss Ann, who is reading the feminine mystique and gaining some enlightenment from being, quote-unquote, oppressed as an affluent white woman who is disengaged from the reality of needing to work of you know having to establish some degree of self determination, um, separate and apart from her family and her husband, mm-hmm. and there being a fundamental disconnect between those two realities. So, African American women have allied with African American men because of the realities of racial apartheid and institutionalized white supremacy insofar as we have always, ever since we were brought here, had to work. We were inscribed as a public body, first and foremost. We never, ever had the luxury and the privilege to be on anybody's pedestal, to be Miss Ann on the plantation or in the suburban home, tending a household and a family. We didn't have that luxury. So right there and then, there was this fundamental schism that is informing the relationships between African-American and white women in the women's movement. And that certainly was brought to the fore with the lack of support that early activists like Shirley Chisholm, for example, didn't get Mm -hmm. from the women's movement, from people like Gloria Steinem and, and Betty Friedan, I believe, who did not support her candidacy for the presidency early on, you know, believing that she wouldn't be a viable candidate. 
Similarly, African-American male leaders did not support Shirley Chisholm because Mm -hmm. of this animus against feminism. You know, Shirley Chisholm was a very ardent, very vocal feminist, and because of this belief that we as black men have to be the standard bearers for power and authority and political viability in our communities. And these kinds of dynamics still exist, particularly if we look at the Christian leadership within our communities and the fact that the voices in those leadership circles continue to be African-American men. You know, the the role of the charismatic, religious African-American male still prevails within black America. And so... These are dynamics that we have to be acutely aware of. And when we're talking about Generation Y and the so-called hip-hop generation, there's another dynamic that Mm -hmm. is more insidious because this is a generation that is so hooked into virtual worlds and virtual realities and a 24-7 media regime where Black women, if we are represented as all at all, we are represented as the sexualized other okay. whole ratchet slut bitch going down the line with the demeaning, degrading, and dehumanizing language. And so this is a perniciously, quote-unquote, post-feminist, and I push back against that term, a post-feminist <laughs> context where young people don't even have any real concept of what agency for women looks like beyond, well, I can shake my ass, you know, on on a video and be, quote, unquote, sexually liberated. You know, I can do like a soft porn um, video and and distribute it and consider myself sexually liberated. So this is where we are. This this is the reality of where we are, not just as people but as a nation. And I see this day in and day out with my students. I, um, as you know, run a women's leadership project program in South L.A. high schools. And the predominant theme amongst young women when we talk about empowerment around just being critically conscious about the abuse and the violence and terrorism, really, that they experience on a day-to-day basis is we have to acknowledge that that is abuse, violence, and terrorism and not a naturalized experience for women of color. When you have, you know, young women, you know, pushing back against the notion that they are victimized, you know, by this kind of unrelenting assault upon their sense of self, personhood, and subjectivity. So we have a lot of work to do. A lot exactly. of work to do as, you know, black, feminist, humanist, atheist, free-thinking activists that really exactly. supersedes this very reductive, in my mind, paternalistic Mickey Mouse equation of black equals backward, you know, undereducated, hyper-religious, hysterically <laughs> Christian. That's offensive. Yes. Yes. Very much so, very much so, and I agree with you 100%, and that's the reason why I think it's important for us to take it back and teach them about women like Sarah Bartman and what she had to deal with and how she was paraded, you know, in the circus like she was this, you know, anomaly, if you will, and how she was mistreated and when they released her, how she was prostituted, if you will, and how it took Africa, you know, when did when did um France send her body, her remains back? They didn't send her remains back until the 1900s. I don't remember exactly when, but, you know, instances like that, and it's still happening today, and what I find disheartening is, a lot of the sexualization of black women, you know, it is coming from, you know, men in our own community, and I just find that a grave injustice. 
Yeah, and contemporary resonances when it comes to the legacy of Sarah Bartman are, when you were talking, I was just thinking about this example of an upstate New York high school that actually reenacted the beating of Rihanna by Chris Brown in a public context, in a public gym at a pep rally. And not only did they reenact this beating, but they also stepped it up a notch performatively and put on blackface. And so this was something that was of the greatest hilarity to this audience. You know, the fact that not only were they reenacting this this violent, savage beating, but Mm -hmm. they were in total Negro slash coon regalia. And Mm -hmm. so, again, these are the kinds of realities that we're in, you know, as women of color. Um, we're not far removed from the tragedy of Sarah Bartman. And Sarah Bartman was used as a vehicle to inscribe the enlightenment of Western scientific inquiry. She was shuttled around, not just, you know, in, in Paris, but throughout Europe, you know, displaying her as this human, quote-unquote, curiosity as the absolute cornerstone of the degradation of the human form, you know, the missing link, Mm -hmm. the lower tier of the evolutionary chain. And so this is something that we have to keep in mind when it comes to this atheist cathexis, white atheist cathexis, upon science as infallible, as objective, as transparent, as transhistorical. This is a deep part of the way in which black women, women of African descent, have been inscribed as hypersexual, amoral readers. Exactly. And we see either that propaganda in, I know we talked about this many times, the billboard campaign, that was launched by the far right a few years ago and was mm-hmm. used to justify this constellation barrage, really, of anti-abortion and anti-contraception legislation, you know, that we've seen, you know, throughout the nation, state legislatures, you know, voting to proclaim and declare an embryo a person. You know, there's a deep connection, you know, between that history of Sarah Bartman and the exhibition of black bodies in the early 20th century and the exhibition and the criminalization and demonization of black bodies here in the 21st century. And it has everything to do not just with this Christian ethos of degrading the racialized other, but also with a secular Western Enlightenment-based scientific tradition of inscribing otherness on the bodies of peoples of African descent, first and foremost, as, you know, the utmost space of otherness and objection and opposition to white Western norms of humanity, universality, and civilization. Exactly, exactly. And we could go on with that for a while because that's definitely a topic that needs to be addressed and that's why guys I tell you you need to pick up this book because it addresses a lot of these issues. One issue that I wanted to talk about, you know, briefly if we can, is um the systemic dismantling of the public school system and the heralding of the charter schools that's happening in this country now. Bedrock topic. Um <laughs> This is this is something that is extremely vexing to me as an educator because we're seeing it in terms of the creaming of African-American middle-class students and families from, quote-unquote, inner-city schools. And I, that's another term that I push back against because inner-city means poor and African-American. It has mm-hmm. nothing to do with a geographically uh, articulated space. So... We have a number of things that are operating under this regime of not just charterization, but high-stakes testing mandated by 
the Obama administration under its race to the top initiatives and policy. What has been established about charterization, and there are a number of really excellent uh, policy reports on this, uh, notably put out by the Economic Policy Institute. Highly recommend listeners go check out their work. Linda Darling-Hammond, a major African-American education activist, you know, progressive scholar from Stanford, is uh, among the theoreticians in that institute. But have looked at charters very critically and have deemed charters to be wanting in terms of their caliber, in terms of their output, in terms of their evaluative merit for our students. They are no better and in many instances worse than, quote-unquote, under-sieged inner-city schools. So we have that aspect with regard to breaking down the, the real level of quality of charters. Another aspect is we have corporate raiders that are descending upon our communities, the Walmart exactly. Foundation, mm-hmm. the Road Foundation, the Gates Foundation, and scores of others anchored by hedge fund profiteering. So you have basically these conglomerates that are descending upon public schools and capitalizing off of the desperation of working-class parents of color, setting up these schools basically to fail, having teachers that are not protected by unionization, have no defined benefit plans, can be fired at will, having mm-hmm. special needs and English language learner students marginalized from the system because the whole dynamic of charter schools is to basically take the best, quote-unquote, from the community, not have any accountability for ELL and special needs students, Mm-hmm. And to try and capitalize off of that in terms of these astronomical test scores. And certainly we've seen in public school systems like Atlanta and D.C., which has not been fully investigated because of Michelle Reeves' dominance, uh, former dominance there, where you have these testing scandals breaking out mm-hmm. because, you know, there is this maniacal rush for accountability via testing, and that first and foremost fails our students, African-American students, the most. So there's a perfect storm, you know, of the high-stakes testing regime mandated by George W. Bush with no child left behind and now filtering into the Obama uh, administration. And this hysterical, maniacal, obsessive focus on charters as the antidote to K through 12 education. Exactly. And what I do is I caution people to go out and actually do some research on that because there are a lot of, you know, immigrants, if you will, that are purchasing these charter schools. And what happens is it takes them to the front of the INS line for uh, citizenship. And, you know, people need to understand and read the correlation, understand that the charter schools are for profit and, you know, how it's setting it up, like you said, for the perfect storm, which takes us to the school-to-prison pipeline. Right. You know, Absolutely. a lot of the people, they're not seeing this. And we're trying to caution them, but the propaganda that's on the news is telling them that the system as they know it has failed them, and this is the new alternative. Again, that, going back to that Christ-like type of metaphor there, and, and that's what's happening. But but their children, you know, there are more children being sent directly from school to prison. And what a lot of people of color aren't seeming to realize is that now it's not just the boys, you know, a lot women. The girls are going to jail and prison at alarming numbers right now. So that's a big theme in Dallas Americana and looking at this architecture of mass incarceration and the way that it impacts the lives of youth in particular. One major segment in the book examines suspension and expulsion policies and the degree to which African-American students are just, it's just off the chain in terms of 
the way in which we have been criminalized by suspension and expulsion policies. African-American girls, and I'm glad to bring this up, are the most suspended population next to African-American boys. And to put this in perspective, white male students, Latino male students, Native American male students are not as suspended as black girls. So the least suspended demographic in American public schools is Asian American girls and then white girls and then Mm -hmm. Latinas. African-American girls eclipse males of other ethnicities in being suspended. And we are also looking at the adult prison population. We are also overrepresented, and certainly in terms of California, insofar as we're 30% of the California prison population, whereas black women are maybe about 7% of the overall California population. And if we go state by state and look at the figures, look at the stats, there is a direct correlation between the over-suspension and expulsion of African-American youth in not just high schools but in middle schools and incarceration rates. So this school-to-prison pipeline dynamic begins with the perceptions that Educators, administrators, frontline personnel, i.e. staff, security staff in schools, have about black students. And we're not just talking about, unfortunately, non-black adults. We're talking Mm -hmm. about African-American adults. And I did a a major article on this um, about a year ago, looking at LAUSD's Apartheid Hall of Shame and the fact that if we go into predominantly African-American schools, predominantly African-American teachers and administrators are unfortunately presiding over these discriminatory suspension policies where Mm -hmm. African-American students are perceived as being more threatening, as being more defiant, um, as not, quote-unquote, conforming to the normative conduct that they presumably should have in a classroom. And this gets back to one of the major themes of the book, cultural relevance. Because Mm -hmm. if an educator comes into the classroom with the perception of African-American students from all class backgrounds as being achieving, as being highly intellectual, as Mm -hmm. being articulate, as having social capital, then you will not see these devastating, staggeringly staggeringly high suspension rates. Exactly. And so it goes back to changing the ethos around the way in which youth of color are perceived in our communities and changing the perception of the role that African-American social history and community and social capital has played in the educational process. So we're really looking at a number of different dimensions, you know, when we talk about the school-to-prison pipeline. And it has been absolutely pernicious for our students on multiple levels. And certainly if we look at, for example, college-going rates, um, push-out slash dropout rates, you know, the staggeringly Mm -hmm. high, you know, dropout rates amongst our students, you know, the highest in California, African-American students represent the highest rate of student dropouts. Um, We're under siege. We are absolutely under siege. And to direct your listeners again, you know, to some very critical public policy research on this, the Education Trust West just released a report uh, that looked at, African-American students within specifically the Los Angeles Unified School District, but statewide as well, and determined that the track that we're on now, where you have these disproportionate rates of suspension, expulsion, and push-out, given this trajectory, there will be only one in 20 African-American students that will be college-ready that will go on to four-year colleges and universities in California 
by, I believe it was the year, like, 2020 or something like that. Um, and what kind of comment is that on the so-called post-racial colorblind American exceptionalist nation? Mm. Right, exactly. And, you know, again, all of these issues, you know, we definitely need to talk about them even more and bring it more and more to the forefront and hold these, quote-unquote, black leaders accountable, the ones that have totally disregarded these issues and that have been pretty much paid off. And when you start bringing that information to the forefront, you know, and again, it goes back to um, the way that we've been, you know, institutionalized and, you know, our thought processes. We need to bring this information out and we need to, again, as you stated, you know, change the paradigm, take control of the narrative and, you know, kind of set things straight and offer people an alternative. But it's just so much happening in our community, so much happening, not enough time to really get it all in and talk about it. But one thing that I do want to talk about is I want to congratulate you on your scholarship program, the success of your scholarship program. Do you mind telling us a little bit about it? Absolutely. Um, And I want to say that I really appreciate your support, your reinforcement, and engagement with the program. Uh, Black Skeptics LA spearheaded a four-year college-going and two-year college-going scholarship fund for South LA students, and we're focusing on four populations, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, questioning youth, foster care youth, homeless youth, and undocumented youth. And the reason why we focused on those four populations is because these are historically underrepresented youth populations within not just the four-year college-going sphere, but also the two-year college-going sphere. Major report uh, by the Institute for Success and Education that looked at foster care retention rates, foster care youth retention rates in two-year colleges. It is abysmal. If you are a foster care young person, particularly of African-American or Latino descent, you have a very marginal chance of getting your AA from a two-year institution, much less transferring and graduating from a four-year college. So we want to focus on foster care youth because African-American youth in L.A. County are, again, overrepresented amongst the foster care population. And as foster care youth age out of the system, they are more likely to become homeless because obviously they lack the support mechanisms. They lack uh, the job resources, the familial resources that they need to move into college and careers and stable housing. So we identified foster care homeless um, and also undocumented youth for these reasons of socioeconomic disenfranchisement. LGBTQ youth of color are also underrepresented for a range of reasons that are informed by high rates of homelessness and high rates of foster care placement. So we thought it was important to identify these populations and to reserve four scholarships for $1,000 for these young people and specifically focus on South L.A., because African-Americans predominate now in South L.A. Um, LAUSD has really shrunk in terms of African-American dominant schools. We only have maybe three or four high schools that are predominantly African-American now within the LAUSD. And so we're working in partnership with teachers and administrators and counselors in these schools you know, to try and recruit students and to emphasize humanism in terms of their essays and their thinking about what they might like to do with these scholarships. Excellent, excellent. And, you know, again, congratulations, because when I first heard that you were putting together this scholarship program, I just thought it was a wonderful idea. Anything dealing with education, I definitely get behind that because a lot of these young people, you know, that's where they lose their hope when they graduate, if they graduate from high school. After that, it becomes a now what? 
type of scenario. And mm-hmm. many of them have not been taught life skills. Many of them have not been given the proper guidance and motivation to move forward from that point. In, from that point, and in some cases, you know, the abuse that some of them had to deal with and continue to deal with on a continuous basis is just it's it's unreal. So to be able to give these people some motivation and encourage them to pursue, you know, their dreams, that's a wonderful thing. So you know, again, you know, I thank you and congratulate you for putting that together and for thinking about a segment of society that you know, to a certain degree, is thrown away. Thanks so much for the acknowledgement, Kim. And also wanted to emphasize that this is the first in the family humanist scholarship. So we're not only, in terms of the application, you know, looking at the principles of humanism and the cultural relevance of humanism in terms of legacies of activism and what youth are doing in their present lives, but we also want to emphasize that this is for first-generation college-going youth, i.e., college-going youth that will be the first in their immediate families to go on to college. And that is a huge hurdle, as we know, for many young people of color, you know, to be the first in the family, to not have, as we've spoken of, those resources, not just in terms of material resources, but the intellectual, emotional, social, and psychic resources to believe Mm -hmm. that they can go on to college. And I can't tell you how many times I have heard from young people in schools where there is no college preparation or college-going culture that, well, when I graduate, I'm just going to go down the street to, you know, El Camino or Southwest, you know, the local, you know, two-year school and, you know, take a few classes and then get my degree without really thinking about what about a four-year? I mean, mm-hmm. you've got a 3.5 GPA. What about going on to a UC? What about a Cal State? What about going out of state? So exactly. this kind of reinforcement is not being provided to the majority of students in our school systems that come from working-class, first-generation backgrounds. Exactly. Exactly, and this is an ongoing project, everyone, so can you tell them how they can donate to your project, the scholarship program? So we um, are in the process of building a website, which will be blackskepticsla.org, and that is, like I said, in process. But if anyone is interested in donating, you can contact me you know, via our email, which is blackskeptics at gmail.com, and we also have a PayPal address with the same handle. So that's blackskeptics, S-K-E-P-T-I-C-S, at gmail.com. Excellent. That's their email address. It's also their PayPal address as well. So if you all wanted to make some donations via PayPal, you just log into your account and send money via PayPal at that email address there. And again, that's blackskeptics at gmail.com. And Dr. Hutchinson, you're doing a fantastic job. I wanted to thank you and, you know, we appreciate you and we look forward to seeing more coming from, you know, yourself as well as the Black Skeptics Group. You're definitely a beacon and you know, we look up to you, and we appreciate it. And I wanted to make one more comment about your book. Dick, Jane, and Spot will never look the same to me ever again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the intent, a deconstruction of the mythos of the white Dick and Jane Primers, so beautifully used by Toni Morrison in The Bluest Eye. And that's another reference for the listeners. That's one of my favorite novels. Excellent, excellent. But I appreciate you. I appreciate you, Kim, and thanks so much for your leadership and vision. Thank you, thank you. And again, we thank you for call, for calling the show. We thank you for being a part of the show, um, guys. This was pre-recorded for those of you out in the Los Angeles area. Today, on Sunday, um, Dr. Hutchinson will be at the book fair. You can give them the information about that. 
Yes, I'll be at the L.A. Times Book Festival, which is on USC's campus in Southern California. And I will be at the Atheist United booth from 10 to 12 and Revolution Books' booth from 12 to 1 o'clock. That's Sunday, April 21st. Fantastic. And for those of you who are um, in different areas of the country, Dr. Hutchinson, she travels quite a bit. So if you go to com, you should be able to see her itinerary and see where she's going. And, again, those of you in Atlanta, she'll be there at the end of August for a program there. And that information is forthcoming as well. So on that note, Dr. Hutchinson, thank you so much for spending time with us. We truly appreciate you and everything that you've done for the you know, the community, not just the free thought community, but the community at large. And, you know, again, thank you. Thanks so much, Kim. I really appreciate it. All right. And there you go. You all have a good day now. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.